Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast where we explore classic texts for the modern martial artist. Let's return to the Zhuangzi for two parables that relate to knowing how to use things correctly. Obviously, for today, we'll mean something in the martial arts used correctly. They're both from the part of the Zhuangzi called the Inner Chapters, and involve conversations between another philosopher named Huizi and Zhuangzi himself. In both, Huizi brings a problem to Zhuangzi as a friendly criticism of Zhuangzi's philosophy and Taoism. Also in both, Zhuangzi responds with a story to illustrate how Huizi has misunderstood the principle behind the problem. I'll forgo getting into anything about Zhuangzi today, the author or the work, as I've covered that plenty in the prior Zhuangzi episodes. Check them out if you haven't already. However, we haven't talked about Huizi before, so let's take a moment to learn a little bit more about him. Huizi, or sometimes Huishi, there's two different characters that are used for the second part of his name or title. You know, Huizi, like Laozi, might be translated as Master Hui. As an example, Huizi was a philosopher during the Warring States period, and is portrayed in Taoist works as a friendly rival and philosophical sparring partner of Zhuangzi. In fact, the Zhuangzi records a story ostensibly about Zhuangzi reflecting on Huizi's death. So let's hear that now. Zhuangzi was accompanying a funeral when he passed by the grave of Huizi. Turning to his attendants, he said, "There was once a plasterer who, if he got a speck of mud on the tip of his nose, no thicker than a fly's wing, would get his friend Carpenter Sure to slice it off for him. Carpenter Sure, whirling his hatchet with a noise like the wind, would accept the assignment and proceed to slice, removing every bit of mud without injury to the nose, while the plasterer just stood there completely unperturbed." Lord Yuan of Sung, hearing of this feat, summoned Carpenter Sure and said, "Could you try performing it for me?" But Carpenter Sure replied, "It's true that I was once able to slice like that, but the material I worked on has been dead these many years." Since you died, Huizi, I have had no material to work on. There's no one I can talk to anymore. So I guess here's a bonus lesson before today's stories. Your sparring partners are possibly the most important part of your training. We need them to truly get better, to test and refine our art, and to hone ourselves and our tools. Zhuangzi recognized the value of having someone who could push us to be better than we already are. Huizi was considered representative of the school of forms and names, which grew out of Mozi's work. I've done a couple episodes on Mozi in the past, and one of the things I've noticed about Mozi and Huizi is that their philosophy goes down a similar path that we saw in Greek and other Western philosophies. Huizi's philosophy is focused on the relativity of the concepts of tong being the same and yi being different. He often used analogies and paradoxes to convey his arguments. Some say too often, though, like any parable or analogy, as you'll see in today's stories, they are meant as a tool to convey an idea that may be otherwise difficult to put into words, or to explain directly. Despite criticisms of Huizi's use of analogies, Zhuangzi uses them to respond and illustrate his own points. 
Unfortunately, much of Huez's work has been lost at this point, so we depend on how he is represented in the existing Chinese classics to get a feel for the shadows that are left of his ideology and philosophy. It's just a momentary reminder of just how much knowledge has been lost over the years. Reading the classics, we sometimes come across references to works that have since been lost. And I hold out hope that, maybe like the Dead Sea Scrolls, we may someday come across someone's hidden library where we might restore some of that knowledge. At first glance, these two stories may seem similar. However, they have slightly different lessons, both applicable to our martial arts. You can find them both at ctext.org. Zhuang says under the Taoism section, and these stories are in the first section called The Inner Chapters, the first part of the book. They are the last two paragraphs in that section. Let's start with the first story. Huizhe said to Zhuangzi, The king of Wei sent me some seeds of a large bottle gourd vine, which I planted. The fruit, when fully grown, could contain 665 pounds, that is 300 kilograms, of anything. I used it to contain water, but it was so heavy that I could not lift it by myself. I cut it in two to make the parts into bowls, but the dried shells were too wide and unstable and would not hold liquids. Nothing but large, useless things. Because of their uselessness, I broke them into pieces. Zhuangzi replied, You were really dense in the use of what was large. There was a man of song who was skillful at making a lotion, which kept the hands from getting chapped. And his family, for generations, had made the bleaching of cocoon silk their business. A stranger heard of it and proposed to buy the art of the preparation for a hundred ounces of silver. The clan all came together and considered the proposal. We have, they said, been bleaching cocoon silk for generations and have only gained a little money. Now in one morning we can sell to this man our art for a hundred ounces. Let him have it. The stranger accordingly got it and went away with it to give counsel to the king of Wu, who was then engaged in conflict with Yue. The king gave him the command of his fleet, and he gave the medicine to his men so they could fight in cold waters. In the winter, he had an engagement with the fleet of Yue on which he inflicted a great defeat and was rewarded with a portion of territory taken from Yue. Keeping the hands from getting chapped was the same in both cases, but in the one case, it led to the admiral becoming a noble, and in the other, it only enabled its owners to continue their bleaching. The difference of result was due to the different use made of the art. Now you, sir, had gourds large enough to hold 665 pounds. Why did you not think of making large bottle gourds of them by means of which you could have floated over rivers and lakes, instead of giving up and deciding they were useless for holding anything? Huizhe, you should humble your heart. We often will look at a martial technique or even an entire martial art and think that it's not useful in whatever scenario we happen to be considering. People will then judge the entire technique or entire art as being useless. This is represented by Huizhe in this first story. He had a massive bottle gourd. Maybe you've seen these in old kung fu movies. When dried, they're brown and have two connected 
bulbs with a narrow spout at the top. A cork is often used to cap it off. And they're used as a kind of canteen, sometimes to hold water when traveling or liquor. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I'm fairly certain that there's one in Jackie Chan's Drunken Master film. Well, Huiza had a massive one. It could hold over a quarter ton of liquid, which made it kind of useless as a canteen. So Huiza cut it in half, intending to use it as a bowl or a cup. But that, too, was unwieldy. Giving up at using it in the expected or normal ways, he considered it useless and smashed them all to pieces. This is a beautiful picture of what I usually see when someone criticizes a martial practice, or attempts to use their martial arts in a way it was never intended. It works both ways. Too often I find people who are either taking their martial art and trying to apply it to problems it was never meant to solve, or the alternative, I see people trying to apply problems to a martial art that it clearly is not the right tool for the job. That is, acting like Hueza. You take the material, the technique, or the art, and try to use it in some context that makes no sense. Pick an art, any art, and think of some uh, violent scenario. Let's say a riot. Can we honestly say that any martial art can handle that t- kind of violence? Maybe small portions of it, little slices of individual instances of violence, But at the end of the day, if you're trying to take on a mob with your martial art, you screwed up a long time ago. I'm certainly not going to wrestle my way out of a mob. What about a schoolyard bully? Does cutting the bully or putting him in a coma from hitting him repeatedly really solve your problem? Or will it bring you worse and more complex problems than you had before? Neither of these situations, one violence on a massive scale or the other violence on a miniature scale, is ultimately a reflection on the value of any martial art. This is the lesson we get from Zhuangzi. His friend Huizi was trying to use his giant bottle gourds in a way that didn't make sense. This is why Huizi concluded the gourd was useless. And this is how we can be quote-unquote right when when we look at a martial art and say it is useless. Because it is useless in the situation that we have placed it. Like any tool, we need to understand how to use it and what problems it was designed to solve. Zhuangzi points out that Huizi could have used the bottle gourd as a boat. It was certainly big enough, could hold his weight and traveling supplies. I don't know exactly how it worked culturally back then, but I'm imagining this as like Zhuangzi pointing out that he had a car he could go travel around the country in, and instead he smashed it to pieces when he found out he couldn't use it as a bicycle. This, ultimately, is the lesson of this parable. The misapplication of our martial art is not a discredit to our martial art. It simply reflects the ignorance of the one who doesn't understand how to use it. That can be either for an outsider or for ourselves who try to misapply our art in ways it was never meant to be used. However, Zhuangzi deepens this lesson with his own parable. The silk bleachers used their medicine to heal their hands while bleaching silk. I don't know what cost of chemicals they used, but I'm sure it was hard on the skin. And they continued doing this in their poverty for generations. Then this stranger, this man, comes along, who used it to keep his navy fighting in less than ideal conditions, and give them an ec- the extra edge they needed to defeat the UA fleet, winning a massive victory and elevating himself to the status of a landed noble. The same tool 
in one set of hands may not be worth much, but in another's hands may be the key to victory. On a near weekly basis, I see this out on the mats. We'll be working on some technique. It'll be interesting, but we won't really understand how to integrate it into our overarching strategy. Some people in class, sometimes myself included, will say, well, that's interesting, but I'll never use that. Or I'll only use it in this one small momentary problem. Then sometimes, weeks, months, or even years later, I'll get an aha moment where I suddenly understand how to integrate the technique or principle that was being taught in a far greater and meaningful way. It was my own ignorance and small mind that prevented me from understanding the use of the tool. I may have used it in some small, insignificant kind of way, but it wasn't until I either saw someone far greater than myself using it or realized it on my own that it could be used as a pathway to a far greater victory. Sometimes we have tools or techniques in our arts that we've categorized as useful in only small ways. However, it is that assumption that we've fully plumbed the depths of the technique that prevents us from seeing just how we might leverage it for far greater things. I would argue that this applies also to entire martial arts. The martial art in the hands of one person may be a small, only partly useful tool. The same martial art in the hands of someone else may be the key to victory in another context. Don't let our assumptions about value and the completeness of our understanding prevent us from seeing new and different ways to apply our tools, techniques, and even arts. Try, if you can, to approach even the simple fundamentals with fresh eyes. This is where newcomers are particularly useful if you've been training in art for a while. It's true they often say or misunderstand things in silly ways, but sometimes they also look at something you've seen thousands of times and see something new, something you've never noticed before. Give them the benefit of the doubt so that you too can look through their fresh eyes and seek out what you've missed. All right, so let's get to the second story. This one follows the last immediately in the Zhuangzi and is the last story in this part of the inner chapters. Huizi said to Zhuangzi, I have a large tree, which men call the Chinese sumac. Its trunk swells out to a large size, but is not fit for a carpenter to apply his line to it. Its smaller branches are knotted and crooked, so that the disc and square cannot be used on them. Though planted on the wayside, a builder would not turn his head to look at it. Now your words, sir, are great, but of no use. All unite in putting them away from them. Zhuangzi replied, Have you never seen a raccoon dog? It lies, crouching and low, till the wanderer approaches, east and west it leaps about, avoiding neither what is high nor what is low till he falls into a trap and dies in his blindness. Again, there is the yak, so large that it is like a cloud hanging in the sky. It is large indeed, but it cannot catch mice. You, sir, have a large tree, and are troubled because it is of no use. Why do you not plant it in a tract where there is nothing else, or in a wide and barren land? There you might saunter idly by its side, or in the enjoyment of untroubled ease sleep beneath it. Neither bill nor axe would shorten its existence. There would be nothing to injure it. 
What is there in its uselessness to cause you distress? All right, so again, we have Huizhe coming to Zhuangzi to point out that something, this time a tree, is useless for building things. It's a pain to work with for carpentry. So Huizhe concludes it's a useless tree and compares Zhuangzi's words, his philosophy, to the uselessness of the tree. Zhuangzi then calls to mind a creature translated in a number of places as either a wildcat or a weasel and as a raccoon dog and others. And I can't help but notice that the first character in the two characters used to refer to this creature is the same character used for tanuki in Japanese, a kind of raccoon dog that gets translated with the word raccoon because of the mask-like markings on the face that call to mind the North American raccoon, though in reality both the Japanese tanuki and the mainland Chinese raccoon dog is probably more closely related to a fox. Actually, today, it's an invasive species found all the way across Russia and into Europe. Well, either way, I'm going to guess, based on the characters here, that the character being referred to, or I should say the creature being referred to in the Zhuangs is one of these raccoon dogs, for lack of a better term. Now, we have a problem. Is it caught and dies, or does it catch something and kill it? Two different translations render it two different ways. The Lege translation which I just read to you, says, till it is caught in a trap or dies in a net. David Hinton translates it as, centering its trap, and finally it makes the kill there in its net. Google Translate, in the context of the entire passage, translates it as, he falls into the trap of a trap and dies in blindness. Interestingly, if you take just the two clauses that make up this section and throw it into Google Translate, it comes out as gibberish because it's trying to apply modern Chinese linguistics to the characters that are being used in a classical context. However, if you give it the full section, I guess it understands to translate it from classical Chinese, as the translation comes out pretty close. Looking at the characters for myself, with my limited Chinese, I see something about being in or avoiding a machine or device, I assume this is the trap, followed by either killing or dying and deceiving a net used to catch birds or fish, or perhaps being deceived by the net and dying, or is it killing? So I, I guess the contradiction lies in the use of this character, and whether the raccoon dog is doing the trapping or is being trapped. It's unclear to me which it is, so let's see if Zhuangzi's continuing story can shed light on what is meant here. This is a useful tool when reading the classics, and you might be working with a confusing translation. The second animal that Zhuangzi refers to is a yak, so massive it moves like a cloud in the sky. But despite being so large, it can't even catch a mouse. Wait, so, if the contrast of the yak to the raccoon dog is reflected through the yak's inability to catch a mouse, then perhaps David Hinton's translation is correct here, in having the raccoon dog doing the catching and killing, rather than Lege's that has the raccoon dog being caught and killed in a net. Maybe? I'm not sure, but based on the context of this yak, it makes more sense to contrast the raccoon dog catching and killing something with its up-down-left-right tactics, and the yak, even though it's massive, being incapable of catching a mouse. So let's go with Hinton's translation in this case, as at least in this moment it makes more sense to me when contrasted with the yak. Zhuangzi takes this contrast and applies it to the useless tree, saying that Huizhe should go plant the tree in some flat place and enjoy it for what it is, 
sleeping in its shade, knowing that it will grow old with no danger from the axe of the carpenters. Suggesting, what's the big deal if it's useless for you? For today's purposes, I would tie this to a similar lesson as the first. We may come and look at a technique or a martial arts and call it useless, because we can't use it for some specific purpose. Yet Zhuangzi seems to suggest that the tree on its own, or the yak, despite it can't catch a mouse, has some intrinsic value greater than that of either a tree that can be cut down for lumber or a raccoon dog that can catch a mouse. If you have an art that is like the tree or the raccoon dog, then good. It's good for the thing it is meant to be good at. However, the Chinese sumac or the yak, even though it is useless as lumber or at catching mice, is again an attempt to apply a purpose to something that it was never meant to do. The tree is not good for lumber, and that is okay. The yak cannot catch a mouse, and that is okay. Likewise, yours or my martial art may not be good for something. Maybe it's not good at handling a mob, or maybe it's not the right tool for handling a drunk uncle at a wedding. It's certainly not gonna, I'm certainly not going to use my Iaido to cut up a schoolyard bully. I am reminded of a quote from Theodore Will Roosevelt. Comparison is the thief of joy. And while it can be applied in more than one context, I think of it now in that the comparison of one art to another is often a false dichotomy. Just because martial art A is not as good as martial art B at, say, oh, let's say an MMA context, this doesn't mean it doesn't have value in some other context. Likewise, it is just as bad for one martial art to say that it has value in a context that it was clearly never meant to be used, or that there are better alternatives for do you see here? This principle works in both directions. On the one hand, we shouldn't discredit an art because it isn't useful in an MMA ring. Likewise, we shouldn't discredit arts that are good in an MMA ring just because it's not useful in some other context. There is value to be found in both kinds of arts, and I would say in most arts. What that value is, well, that's where they differ. One may be good at something very specific. Judo is good at throws. Boxing is good at punching. Can either help me recover from the damage that both do to my body? What if hitting someone with the earth or punching someone repeatedly in the face doesn't get me a legal win condition? Well, then it's time to look for a different tool or find a new and better way to apply the tools we already have. Now, I acknowledge there are false arts out there built on the lies, hubris, and pride of the selfish and ignorant, and yes, we should be on guard against that. However, this defense against the bullshito, this rightful skepticism of those that would use the martial arts to manipulate others, should also not blind us to the value of other arts that are meant for different things. This is, at least in part, why I cross-train. I know that my yak can't catch a mouse, so I train my raccoon dog. In the same way, my twisted tree is no good as lumber, but it is good for providing me shade, a place to nap and recover from my hard training elsewhere. Likewise, when I can't figure out what the point of a giant gourd is if I can't use it as a bottle, well, then maybe it's time to start looking into how to use it as a boat. Maybe I've been using the medicine to protect hands while bleaching silk when I could be using it to conquer nations. The use and misuse of a tool does not discredit a tool. Put another way, the right tool applied at the wrong time 
is the wrong tool. Again, this applies on a micro and macro scale. It can apply to individual techniques or moves, and it can apply to entire martial arts themselves. These stories of Weizhe and Zhuangzi highlights for us a few things. First, how our preconceived notions can interfere with our understanding of how something can be used. This is the lesson of the bottle gourd. Second, the use of something can be applied in small and large ways, and it is up to us to find how much more useful something can be, even if we think it is only useful for small things. This is the lesson of the hand medicine. Third, something that appears useless in one context can be useful in another. This is the lesson of the twisted tree. And fourth, when one thing is good at something, it does not make sense to compare it to something different that should never be used in that way. This is the lesson of the raccoon dog and the yak. If all of us in the martial arts, combat sports, and self-defense worlds applied these lessons to ourselves and to how we interact with others, we would all be better for it. As always, remember, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it. <laughs>